Welcome to Holy Fools and the Soul of Craftwork. I am Dr. Jesse Joyner. And I'm Steve Gross. If you're new to the podcast, Jesse and I are both PhDs in education and people of faith, with a curiosity about craft learning as a means of spiritual formation. In this episode, we consider the craft of writing, and for it, we welcome writer Ben Pelpan. So welcome to the show, Ben. Thanks for having me. All right, before we get started, I, I want to read a little bit from your latest book, which is Letters from the Mountain. It really is kind of a memoir as well as a treatise on the craft of writing. Love it. It's actually one of the few books I bought five times. So as Jesse and I were talking about this, we're both real cheap, real stingy guys. So if we're buying a book multiple times, you better savor the flavor of that because that does not happen. So I've given it to Jesse. I think it's great because it's good for somebody who writes, whether that's novels or sermons or is just interested in in the craft of writing, how it works. So so thank you. And we'll put that in the show notes. We'd we'd love to recommend that resource. So Ben, tell us about yourself and a little bit about your work as a writer as it is now, but also a little bit about your journey of how you got to that point of being a writer. Yeah. So uh, I am a father of five, married to my high school sweetheart. And uh, we live here in the northwest corner of the United States in Washington State. My journey as a writer, uh, let's see, I, I actually hated, I think it's okay to confess this, I hated reading when I was a kid, certainly hated writing. And uh, it wasn't until probably high school that I, I had some folks, you know, various teachers along the way who would encourage me and say, this is really good. You should keep doing this. And I thought, oh, no, no, this is the last thing I want to do. And uh, then I became a teacher and uh, of literature and started writing for the school, a private Christian school uh, here in Washington State. And people were really encouraged by that. And then in my mid-30s, I had a health collapse that, that knocked me out of teaching pretty pretty significantly enough that I had a hard time uh, walking, feeding myself, had very Parkinson-like symptoms. We still don't have a clear uh, diagnosis of what happened, uh, and I still live with some of those effects. But um, it was probably... It was several years after that, after I had been able to return to the classroom, that I realized I'm starting to forget some of the lessons I learned during that time. And they were just too valuable. When you're wrestling through those uh, key questions, is God really good to his sons and daughters when here we're in this wilderness of faith? Um, I had really good mentors during that time. And I thought, here I am getting back in the saddle again, and I'm forgetting everything God taught me. So I decided to write the story down for myself of what happened and, and you know, when did I learn what, but I wrote it as a story and had no intention of that seeing the light of day, but I, I did want uh, other eyes on it just to see if it made sense to them. So I gave it to a friend um, and he pretty critical guy. And um, I thought he'll be honest with me. So I gave him my first half of the book, and he came across the parking lot running the next morning, running and in tears, and he's a big dude. And I mm-hmm. thought, okay, this is either really good news or really bad news. And he said, 
He said, <laughs> Ben took me by the shoulder. He said, Ben, you have got to finish this book for me. Mm-hmm. And that was uh, one of those key moments for me. I thought I, I, I didn't actually know what to do with that. Um, so it, I decided to finish that for me, finish that story for me. And that became a small cup of light, my first book. Uh, and that's a memoir. Um, and that continues to be um, incredible surprise to me. Just see how God takes something that was so horrible. Uh, I thought that was the end of my life. It proved to be the very beginning of this writing life for me. Um, and I, I, I know that I wrote before that out of a hobby, but this was the first time I thought uh, maybe God made me to, to take to mine my own life and mm. give it as a gift to others and see what the Lord does. Um, that's the long version of how I got to be where I was, where I am now as a writer. Do you do you mind if I ask what decade of your life that was published in? Like what what age range? You don't have to give an exact age. Yeah, no, I was in my mid thirties. Mid thirties. Uh, yeah. When the health stuff happened, and then late thirties when that was published. Hmm. And that and so that was ten ten years right. ago. Hmm. That's very encouraging. Yeah, for for people who are wondering, you know. They're in their 30s and they think, oh, I can't start this vocation or <laughs> dig into writing yeah. the way I've always wanted to. Yeah. Oh, I, Jesse, that's so true. I, I've, I, yeah. And to imagine being a teacher, right? Like I, I'm, I'm used to, you know, read about Keats who died really young and wrote volumes of poetry that are incredible. I'm like, I'm, I'm no, I could never be Keats. So what's the point? Um, but, but then you realize, no, I, I know a lot of people who are just starting in their 40s, 50s, 60s even, and they, they've decided that they have something they need to share. And who knows if it hits millions of readers or if it hits five. I think the, the most amazing thing is that God would choose to, to multiply our loaves and fish for even five people. Mm. That's such an honor, right? Yeah. Um, if we're made in God's image and we are, then uh, we're all creative. So, but being a writer requires a certain uh, awareness and listening all the time. So if it's fiction, for example, you find yourself listening to the way somebody speaks, how the very sentence comes out of their mouth because it's who they are. It's not like you're analyzing and studying them. I don't want to be creepy about it, but but you, you, it'll just fall on your ears and you'll go, gosh, that was such a unique way to say that. Um, so mm-hmm. a lot of young folks, young writers that I talk to feel like they need to get something published right now. And there's just so much life to live. You know, C.S. Lewis said, never expect old heads on young shoulders. Well, how do you become a really good writer? It takes time, right? You can't, whatever the craft is, whether it's a beekeeping or whether it, um, whatever the craft is, that's going to take a long time. And even I would say those who've done it for 30, 40 years probably say they're still learning um, their craft. They're, they're just not good enough quite yet, which from if, when I was younger, I'd think, gosh, that's so demoralizing. Right. But um, I think that's true of all the great achieve, achievers in the world. You think of professional athletes who've, who've won a Super Bowl. I'm sure that they're all saying, I'm, I'm not, I'm not done yet. I feel like there's more to learn about this sport. Mm. So it's just a constant, it's just a, a way of living. 
and and you talk about calling as well in your book. And so I'm uh, I'm assuming from what I've seen that you would consider this a calling in your life. Yeah, to be called as a writer uh, raises it from simply being a hobby, something you do on the side for your own enjoyment or for processing. So I write largely to process what I'm experiencing. Um, but I think to be called means that God has anointed you to do a work. Now, that that can sound either uh entirely too holy for the actual dirty work of writing, or it can sound intimidating. And I don't mean it to sound like either one um, because from I, I, what I mean by God has anointed certain people to do that. There's a, there's a, a threefold test for whether someone has been called. Do you feel something inside you that, that compels you to write? Um, do the people around you who know you best, do they say you should should be a writer? And then do do strangers say the same thing? So that you know you're not just uh, deciding on your own. God has called me to do something. I, I think that that happens in our world a lot, and sometimes to de the detriment of families, to the detriment of the individual. They're not really meant to do that. And those who knew know them best and love them would tell them if they really listened. So I think being called as a writer just simply means that over the years it's been reinforced. And, and as long as that reinforcement keeps coming, then you, you just keep offering up your loaves and fish. So, yeah, I suppose calling would be, and I brought, I bring this up in the book, the image of the little boy, the nameless boy who brings his loaves and fish to the Lord. Um, that is for me, a great, a beautiful picture of calling, right? Like, we don't have any idea who this kid was, uh, no name. And yet he's one of the great miracles in the gospels, right? Everybody knows that story. Nobody knows his name. I think that would be my, I don't know, that might be my dream, right? To write something that was so beautiful that people remembered that and had no idea who wrote it, right? Yeah. So I think that that calling when, when the disciples, when Christ says, go get me, that little lunch and he brings it to him uh, faithfully and obediently and says, do with it what you want. I think mm -hmm. that's calling. So Ben, in your book, you bring out the paradox of festina lente or patient urgency. So tell us about that. So why is that a critical posture for craft practices, patient urgency coming together? Yeah, I, I think part of it is longevity, honestly. Um you can sprint on any craft and just say, I'm going to bang this thing out and, and be, I'm going to burn out for Jesus. But, uh, but I don't think that's God's purpose for us. Um, I think that we're meant to have the long journey with him and to develop that craft over a slow, uh, the best meals in my life are not, you know, hit it at, hit it hot and fast, like in a microwave. No, they're just slow cooked, right? Um, for me, writing, sometimes the iron's hot and you got to strike because the ideas are coming. And sometimes uh, it's not that I, I don't actually believe in writer's block. I don't think that's a real thing. I think that um, I, I do believe in writer's fatigue or, um, or, or a lack of consistency, right? So when we think about someone who's called a, 
a genius in a craft or at whatever they do hasn't scientifically, they weren't just given this genius gene. It's that their neurons have fired on the same topic so many mm-hmm. times that they just, everything goes down that neuron now in the same form. And now they're really, really good at that, right? So that's what they think about. And now they can be creative because the neurons fired in the same way. At any rate, the, the principle is true that if we just practice that over time, then I think we get better at our craft, whatever that is. So that's where I would say that the slow pace, the, the patient press forward is another way of saying that. Just keep keep moving forward on a regular at a regular pace and you find out that, you know, five, 10 years later, gosh, I'm so much better than I used to be. And I didn't, I'm still doing it. I'm not burnt out. And you have a whole chapter on habits. Here are the habits for a writer to develop that are not, not based on genius, but actually are based on discipline and attentiveness and really developing over time, a a presence of mind and a listening ear. And I think that's a great section as well. And it underpins what you're saying, right? Yeah, I, I, I do think, and when you use the word disciplines, um, Steve, I think Christians get a little heebie-jeebie with that word. Um, but I, I don't, it can be oppressive to think of these things as disciplines. But if you think of them as, as sustainable practices, uh, as ways to sustain my energy, right, then it's no longer oppressive. It's just, here's the best way to take care of your body so that you can keep doing what God made you to do. Right. Absolutely. Let's talk about another thing that Christians are heebie-jeebie about, confidence. You have a great chapter. This is one of my favorites called Contentment and Ambition. But let me read an excerpt from it. But let me preface a vignette that you wrote about going to a concert, listening to a guy who's opening for somebody else, play the guitar, being very good at it, but lacing his show with a bunch of self-deprecating statements and apologies. So that's the background for this paragraph let me read it he clearly worked hard to learn the guitar and have no doubt that if he had walked on stage as if he were the main event and playing with that kind of joy and authority he soon would have been a main event somewhere or at least joined with a band of creative community where his gifts could thrive as it stands his gifts appear to have no trajectory i don't know his story he wrote maybe his ambition met the wall of failure so many times that he lost heart Maybe he had practiced self-deprecation for so many years that he could see nothing but failure now. I suspect, though, that he simply didn't know how to ambitiously pursue his art while simultaneously being content with where he was at in the process. I think that's a great line, but it brings up the idea that I think we're a little bit hesitant about as people of faith and talking about confidence. What role should confidence have in craft practice? And let me back this up with an experience that I had. So I'm a minister. A few months ago, a guy came to me and said, hey, that was a really good sermon. And he talked about it. And I said to him, that was a really good sermon. Because after 2,000 sermons, I can tell generally when a sermon engages and it clicks and it's, you know, it's put together well and the structure lent itself to the telos and all that. But he was shocked by the fact that I, as a minister, would say, actually, that that was good. So talk about that. Was I wrong in doing that? What's the role of confidence in craft practice? You can call me out. <laughs> I wouldn't dare. No, uh, I I think you remind me of this uh 
I think it really happened when Flannery O'Connor was asked at a, by, by a college student, why do you write? <laughs> In classic Flannery fashion, she said, because uh, I'm good at it. So that strikes us as hubris, um, but it actually honestly assessing what you're good at is not the same as building oneself up with no with no cause. So this really came home to me, uh, Steve, when I took a small cup of light. This was when it was just a manuscript, took it to another author. We went out to dinner and uh, he was kind enough to read it. And had he's a very good writer. He knows what he's doing. And he had all sorts of wonderful things to say to me about the book and how it's going to really bless people. And I was super thankful. And one of the kindest people I, I know, uh, <laughs> halfway through his praise of the book, he he got very serious and verged on not anger, but in he was intense. And he pointed at me and he said, this moment here, let me read it out loud to you. And there was some self-deprecatory comment like, look, I'm just a dude who's, I, I'm just trying to figure life out. And I'm trying to put words to that experience. And I don't, you know, it's not like I'm great, but but I hope it's a blessing to you. He said, don't ever do that again. Mm -hmm. That is actually going to undermine, not only undermine what God has given you to tell, but it's also going to accidentally make other people feel entirely inferior because you don't feel like you're very good at something and you've got a lot to learn about that craft, which is all true. But what if somebody reads your work and they're like, wow, if he thinks he's not very good, then what could I possibly offer, right? Because I'm not that good. Well, that's how I feel when I read the greats, right? When I read the great writers, I just go, wow, I, I got so much to learn. Um, but they've never done that to me. They've never said, yeah, you need to just stay home and put your pencil away. No, they said, come join the conversation. And that's when we when we're uh, the false humility, I think, kills creativity, kills relationship, kills motivation, kills uh, trajectory. You just end up stalling out because you just keep uh, knocking yourself back when God has brought you so far. Yeah. Is it not kind to ourselves? But more importantly, it's not taking the gifts God has given us seriously. It doesn't it disregard the person's judgment and feedback to say, actually, you don't know what you're talking about. Right. I think right. I'm really bad. Yeah. Kind of th it reminds yeah. me of that classic C.S. Lewis quote, right? Real humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's thinking yeah. of yourself less. Rightly. Right. Yeah. And thinking rightly, right? Yeah. Uh, when scripture talks about that, I think that that's the, the, the picture we're told to have a right view of ourselves, not a lofty view, a right view. That does not mean it has to be a low view. Uh, but acknowledging, you know, when I turned 40, I had a friend, a friend say to me, oh, 40s are the best. Well, he was the, like everyone else is like, God, oh, downward from here, right? But he said, no, 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 no. In your 40s, you finally figure out what you aren't supposed to do. And it's yeah. so liberating, right? And I thought, gosh, that's such a wonderful perspective. I hope it comes true. Well, it, it really has. I realized, you know what, I'm I'm not meant to do all these other things. I, I, I know what God has meant me to do and bless those who can do these other things. Go get them. 
So how can I, how would I, how can I encourage you along the way? Right. So for the person listening to this, that's on the pathway of craft mastery and they have developed some competency, how do they, how do they get to that place of approaching confidence in the right way? So it's not in pride and it, it's not an identity issue. So talk about that a little bit too, because they want to keep pressing yeah. in. Yeah. Well, I think that has to come from outside ourselves. Um, other people have to, other people who are qualified need to tell you that you're good at something. Um, does that, and, and that there's a relativity to that. There's a, a scale to that kind of level. So, um, you know, when my mom tells me, gosh, this is really good. I I'm so honored. Right. And I'm thank you, mom. But I also know it's mom. Gosh, yeah. she, she would love whatever I put together. She would. She's just an encourager. And so thank you for the encouragement. And at the same time, who else out there could give me an objective view of whether I'm really good? So I sent, I'll send my manuscripts to people who I think are, um, they might respond. So I try not to pick the people who are so famous that I know that there's no way they can get back to me. But folks who I think they're just ahead, if we were thinking of this as a race, and it's not a race, but who is just ahead of me who would give me feedback on how I'm doing? I would say the same comes for praise. Uh, You work really hard in obscurity for a very, very long time. And you keep casting this out there and saying, hey, anybody have time to read this and give me feedback? When they do, then listen to them and then just ask yourself how qualified are they to you know where are they on the qualification levels now some people are overconfident i tend to be underconfident i tend to question myself so i need other people to tell me no 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 this is really actually good and then i'll say okay that that helps me to know where i am andrew peterson put it really well your gifts are given to you for community and and you can't really measure your usefulness or your or or even I would say your success based on awards or private um, uh, evaluation. It's really how how have I been a blessing to my community? We'll talk a little bit about the different stages in the journey of being apprentice, being a journeyman, being a master. Is that early on you imitate and try to get yourself close to those who. You can see how they look at things, even if they can't explain it's tacit, some of the practices, some of the ways that they interact with their vocation. I think it's imitation. I think a lot of people look at imitation with a, you know, they frown on imitation, but that's how we, that's how we get better at every single thing in life. Everything. Um, My son used to watch me shoot hoops and I would shoot my free throws and I would look out in the window and there he is at four years old watching me. And then I'd watch him later and he would do the same. He's just imitation, imitation. Now that boy can smoke me now. He can smoke me on the court anytime he wants, but I know that it started by imitation, right? Uh, And I would say the same of any craft, imitate. You're always imitating. Mm -hmm. Um, You're always studying. Otherwise you grow, ironically, you grow stagnant. Um, I would also say you're always an apprentice. So there's a relativity to this, right? I just had a young writer. Um, we spent a couple hours talking about her manuscript. And, you know, she would look at me as a master. 
I don't look at myself as a master. I'm nowhere near. Now, now again, I don't, that, that might be false. Humi- it's not false humility. It's just me looking, knowing that the older I get and the more I've done this, the more I realize how much I have to learn. Um, and, and I, I've, I know that that's true of people as they grow older, when you realize that, gosh, the older I get, the more I have to learn. So I think we're always imitating. We're always an apprentice. And over time, you develop your voice. Um, you know, when I was a young writer, it was absolutely paralyzing to hear that I had to find my voice. Uh, creative writing teachers would tell me that in high school. I'm like, where do I look? Tell me, <laughs> help me out. I want to find my voice. You just got to right. just got to keep writing. Well, that's not very helpful when there's such pressure to be different. Um, and I, I think that's a growing pressure, especially on this generation coming up. You got to be unique. Well, I think that's how you find your voice. You imitate 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 and there's no way i could imitate a a great basketball shooter's release but over time that will become my signature and it will look a little different than whoever i was imitating just because i'm not that guy right Mm -hmm. yeah you what you just spoke about ben it makes me think of in the world of like as a juggler in the world of like circus performers and clowns they talk like clowns they talk about finding your clown character you know like finding your clown self and i remember hearing that and thinking exactly what you thought like where do i go to find this like i don't know what to do with this and i I think what i've learned over the years is that someone's clown character as a clown it's simply an amped up version of themselves it's 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 just kind of like it's it's them on on a higher level and being able to do it on a stage for other people but it's still themselves. It's still ourselves. Um, and so speaking of clowns and this, this podcast is called Holy Fools. Uh, there was something you said in your book that makes me think about this. You said, forget about the fame, focus on the work. That's a pretty counterintuitive against the flow idea that uh, like the, we live in a world where we're all pursuing fame and or, or that's what we tend towards. We want the affirmation of the audience. We want people to love us. Um, talk to us about why why you said that. Forget about the fame and focus on the work, and what that means. Yeah, I th- I think that I I wrote that. You know, almost everything I write, actually everything I write, I write for myself. So that little exhortation is so that I can come back to it later and say, right, don't don't be chasing after the fame. It's it's elusive. The work is really concrete. Right. I, I can't control fame. And and there is a part of me, the sick part of me that would like fame, but I don't actually want that. I want effectiveness. I want people to love whatever I build um, for for what I built, not necessarily for me, as we talked about earlier. But um, the work is the concrete aspect of this. You can actually control how you do the work itself. And if you focus on being a good craftsman, whatever that craft, then uh, good results will come, right? If you stick at it, you just get better and better at what you're doing. And it's going to require a ton of failure, right? We don't actually achieve success without a ton of failure. Failure is that is definitely the road to success. And even once people have reached success, they still fail after that. So, if you can't enjoy 
the obscure work of writing without any acknowledgement of your work, then you probably shouldn't be a writer. But if you can, enjoy, if you enjoyed the actual crafting of sentences and you love just words, how they sound and, and how they evoke feeling, um, how, how do you create catharsis in a story, not as a way to uh, manipulate people and manufacture feelings, but to actually make a story uh, mean something to people that that's concrete. That's, that's actually, um, you can achieve that through concrete means. And so if I focus on my craft and stop worrying about fame, then I think I'll, I'll end up being effective. And if God brings fame, that's up to him. Uh, Thomas Howard, one of my favorite lines from him uh, as a, as a writer, he said, one of his essays, he said, the Lord uh, knew that, uh, I'm so glad you guys can edit all of my. Uh, <laughs> we want <stuff>. this part. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Take your time. We only edit our mistakes no, out, right, Jesse? That's right. Thomas Howard said something to the to the effect of, "God never made me famous. My books have not been more than a ripple in the great sea of words, because he knew I could not handle a hot tub and beautiful women." So, <laughs> <laughs> so you just say you know if god brings fame along the way then lord equip me to handle that fame well mm. and if you don't then you know and love me and you know what is best for me so just help me to be faithful with the gift you've given me right um i think there's an aspect of writing that that does seem foolish to me and that people don't necessarily, I don't think young writers are equipped or prepared for it uh, because they see the fame and they see, they see all the great reviews, but they don't see the bad reviews. Um, they, they don't see the hours of toil, the discouragement, the feeling like I don't, this isn't working right now. Right. Um, but there is a part of this that feels a little bit like well digging Um you're just casting money down a hole, in my case, time and, and finances, too. You're just casting them down a hole and hoping that that, that there's good water down there. Um, but in my case, and I, and I think this is true of many writers that I know, it's a com- there's a compulsive nature to the digging. Mm. I'm 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 out there digging compulsively. I'm just digging holes into my into my life experience, my heart, my memories, um, uh, all of the things that God has given to me. And I just keep digging, digging, digging to see if there's good water down there that might be uh, refreshing to me, honestly. And if it's refreshing to me, it might be refreshing for others. Folks who write for a particular demographic and who are trying to capitalize on market trajectories or whatever's popular at the time you know what if you're trying to try to imitate harry potter well by the time you get your little manuscript done you're four years past that coming out and and there are millions of imitators out there so if we follow those trends i think we get in trouble if we keep writing for particular people and i i did talk about this i think in the book if you if you pick two or three people in your life who you say maybe this will be a blessing to them well then often god uses that to bless other people right lewis wrote for his nephews and nieces 
and here we we love the the books that came from that but i i think if young people entering a craft recognize the beauty of working hard in isolation and leaving the results to the lord then when the results happen when you strike good water mm. what rejoicing right it's just beautiful mm. Mm. Ben brings up kind of the heart of this podcast, the idea that craft practice could be a means of spiritual formation. What do you think about that? Oh, oh completely. I think we are what we do. Uh, it comes to just daily life, we become what we do uh, and who we're around. So I think in the in specifically writing, um, but I do think this is for all any any kind of craft that that people want to get better at. The more you do it, the more you are shaped by it. And that is its own gift. Uh, It's formative to who I am. My relationship with God is definitely formed by how I write. I don't, I don't, I choose to write in a certain way, um, a certain tone of voice, because I want to become that kind of a person. It's not Mm -hmm. that necessarily I am that kind of person but because I want to become that kind of person. And if I wrote in a pugilistic way, if I, if my writing is just to pick fights, I'll become that kind of a person. I, I don't really want to become that. Um, mm-hmm. So in that respect, yeah, it's very formative. We'll talk about this. So craft work is hard work. What has failure taught you along the way? So give us an example of failure. It's usually as easy. Everybody has a good example. My favorite review Absolutely. I shouldn't say that. That's not fair. One of my favorite reviews was a was a one star review on Amazon. I try not to read reviews, but anybody who tells you they don't read reviews is a liar, um, I think. <laughs> so once in a while, I'll get on there and just say, OK, what's what's how I think the best way to read reviews is to say, what is God? How is God using this book in people's lives? Um, and I, if I can approach that with that kind of humility, then I should, then it's okay. But one of these reviews was a one star and I thought, oh, I'm devastated, devastated. And so I read it and this woman said, uh, this was about uh, my book of poetry called Sojourner Songs, which was taking the Psalms that had ministered to me in my spiritual desert and re, I guess, recrafting them in modern day free verse style so i took those verses that are that are dark that that are crying out to god and that was a lot of those poems and she said i did not like this book far too many dark themes and i thought well honey that's absolutely true this book was not meant for you, you know? <laughs> so, so I, I think that. Pick it up with the song that's, list. Yeah, that's, you're right. That's right. Uh, I don't think, I don't know that that's true failure, but one thing that I, I think failure does teach us is um, it, it teaches us, or it teaches us that we're not God, right? We're going to fail, but we're going to fail. So if we're going to fail, Either that can knock us sideways and off the off the road, and then you know what's God? How is God going to use us? Or we say, no, God still has a purpose for my work. He knows what He's doing. I'm just going to keep pressing forward, right? So that does require a level of grit. But the the irony for me is that the failure, if you press through the failure, 
then you get more grit. But you can't manufacture those life experiences, right? So, yeah, life comes and and you say, Lord, help me to have a level of grit that over time helps me to sustain the the hard winds of change that are out there, but I'm still sailing. And, you know, as a metaphor, you can use the wind that's coming at you and actually speed up. How about this question? Because you make allusion in your book to the idea of we live in such an overstimulated world. There's so there's a glut of words and images all around us. And to be overstimulated for a writer is bad craft practice. I mean, that's what I'm picking up from the book. And I think probably every vocation has its own unique bad craft practices. Off the record, Steve, do you find that there are two kinds of pastors, those who are scholars and those who are shepherds, and that there's like one in a thousand who are both? Oh, yeah, true. Well, you naturally grab, there's nothing off the record, of course, but you naturally gravitate towards certain things that give you life or take life. And some people just like hanging out with people as a minister and some people like to to study and I don't think those have to fight, but it's good to right. know who you are yeah. in the sense of when you probably give your best energy to the thing that you have the least intrinsic draw yeah. toward. Yeah, that's well said. Um, let's see, bad craft practices for writers. Uh, I think that it would involve not writing <laughs> first. So <laughs> there's a, there's a paradox here. So I'm going to say not writing, and not reading enough. So mm -hmm. a lot of writers will just, young writers in particular will say, I don't, I don't have time to read. I've got to write. You know, you got to read. If you're going to write, you have got to read. So I, I try to read 50 plus books a year. And I, I would love to get up to the mid seventies because that's where I think I would get better at my craft. Well, you can't, if you're reading all the time, well, you're not writing. So you do mm -hmm. need to strike that balance. Um, I think bad craft practices would be not reading enough, writing too much so that you end up either not learning or you're burning out. Um, I would say another one is, uh, I, don't, I don't know if this is bad craft practice or bad craft um, mindset. Maybe those are different things, but a bad craft mindset usually leads to bad craftsman practices. Uh, and those mindsets would be that my I'm special, that uh, what I have to say, everyone should listen to. And that's just not true. Uh, I think if God has given you your loaves and fish, then he'll, he'll multiply those for his purposes. But you just be faithful with, with, what you have and keep offering it. Great. Well, thank you, Ben, for your time. You've been super generous, as is your book. I mean, you talk about generativity and giving things away. And so you've given your time to us. I appreciate that. Yes, very oh, much welcome. appreciated. It's, it's, it's my honor. Thank you, fellas. I enjoyed talking to you. On the next episode of Holy Fools, we will drill down into some learning concepts and research to consider how something like the craft of writing might inform our own faithful work every day. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye. This episode of The Soul of Craftwork is brought to you by the Roaring Fork Fellows Program. Are you a 19 through 29 year old interested in starting well in your career with a strong faith and work foundation? The Roaring Fork Fellows Program is a nine month internship for young adults located between Aspen and Vail in the Roaring Fork Valley of Colorado. For more information, go to roaringforkfellows.com.